0: Welcome to Catalogs and Noise. My name is Joe, and I'm here to talk about Mary Wept Over the Feet of Jesus, which is the last work published by Chester Brown as of this date. And um, I think it's pretty good. I can't help but compare it to paying for it. I think that's natural. I think that these are essentially companion pieces in a lot of ways, in that they both deal with the central ideas of prostitution and how it functions. Or how it should function perhaps in society, um, but I, I see a distinct difference between them. I don't think this is as strong a work as paying for it I mean it's it's not bad at all it's just not it doesn't have that kind of visceral, immediate intimate quality that I think makes paying for it really work. So I plan to talk about three different themes in this book i 'm going to go through them kind of one by one. so the first one is the portrayal of prostitution as something that should be de- destigmatized, as an idea that Brown wants to champion and normalize for audiences, which I'm all for. You know, um I, I think it's the right-headed way to think about it. In paying for it, even though some of the depictions I thought were a little problematic, perhaps. I think that the overall project is a good one. You know, that, you know, the idea of governments um, controlling people's sexuality is, is strange and, and should be rethought. Um, So what is the difference here? So it's hard to articulate, but paying for it argues from Brown's personal experience and point of view. So you get this kind of intimate portrayal of somebody that lives it. And and, and I don't know, I I think it helps us sympathize with the plight of the John or the prostitute, um, given the kind of unfolding of those circumstances. This is a different type of argument. This argument is about authority. So it's strange, I'm going to talk about this more a little later, but this is essentially an anti-authoritative work in that I think it's a work that wants to challenge authority. Again, more on that in a minute. But this book actually, in some kind of paradoxical move, relies on authority as a means to articulate the, the argument about prostitution. So by basically going through the Bible and reimagining it or portraying it, Um, in this kind of condensed, edited way. Brown wants to make an argument that because, I think, uh, don't get me wrong, I think, that because the Bible holds these point of views, therefore it must be moral. That is a problem, I think, for at least two reasons. Number one, the book also, or at least half of the book, demonstrates his anti-authoritarian ideas. So you get into this kind of strange... You know, paradox again, where you're not really sure where your sympathies should lie. But more importantly, it's just a poor way of arguing a philosophical point, right? Whenever somebody refers to authority, they seem to be sidestepping the kind of meat of the argument, right? Um, you know, saying that teacher said this, therefore it's right, doesn't never really speak to the rightness or wrongness of the thing in its own right. So I think there's a little much too much relial, reliance on that to make it compelling for me, ultimately. I do think it has other charms, but in terms of a rhetorical strategy, it kind of falls short because of those reasons. I actually love it, though, when it is a challenge to biblical authority, right? And that's a problem. It really can't be both, but it somehow is. Brown often in this book is making the point that you need to rethink authority, whether it's God, but I think he's really talking about a larger societal idea of authority, um, in order to really get at the essence of what life should be, or the essence of what meaning should be for an individual's life. I love on the very uh, cover, on the uh, the subtitle of this work is Prostitution, Kind of Big and Bold, and then uh, Smaller Underneath, uh, Lowercase, quote, unreligious and and obedience in the Bible. You know, that seems to take a, a secondary um, place in terms of the thesis of the text. And I don't think it should be, but I, I can feel in the way that it's even written on the front of the text that Brown's hedging a little, that he's not um, as solid about the obedience aspect as he is about the idea of prostitution. And, you, you know, that's to me the big difference. I, I can really see it and feel it in a visceral way in paying for it. And this is, this is heady and academic. And usually I'm a sucker for those things. Um, but there's just something that's a little bit muddled in terms of how it's making an argument in this text. Again, I love the text where, where you know, paying for it is an A plus. This is probably an A minus. I, I don't want to go crazy in terms of, you know, damning this. But um, it, it's hard because it is so clearly meant to exist with paying for it. And you can't help but compare those two things and paying for it's an absolute monster. All right. Theme number two gets me a little more into that specifically what the authoritative text is doing. And I guess I should say that before I get into this, there's two types of biblical stories, right? Ones that are explicitly about women and sexuality. They're not all about prostitution, but they're all about, and, and he puts it very succinctly towards the end of the book, Um, women that are using their sexuality as a social advantage in some way. And those are kind of one group of texts. The other texts are just generally about man going against the word of God or some kind of God proxy when it comes to the Jesus parables that are depicted here. Now, those come together, I think, to create the central thesis that has something to do with The nature of the depiction of Mary in the Bible, Mary being Jesus's mother. There's actually three Marys that are discussed in this text. Um, And that Matthew, the evangelist particularly, has kind of put in hidden messages, uh, particularly when it comes to the genealogy of Christ himself, that will unfold to us the idea that Jesus was pro-prostitution, which I don't think is really you know, news. Uh, I think it's very clear when you read the, you know, passages from the New Testament in their own right. I think it's literally there. But Brown is making a, a larger point about um, early Christians, their inability to, to take Jesus's law as their own law because of their own prejudices that come from their older society values, and therefore. Matthew has to kind of uh, fold in the reality of who Christ was in the text, which is interesting. And I think says a lot about, you know, what texts do. I'll save that for my third theme. But um, Brown's Christianity is basically the last thing he talks about in the afterwards here. And he basically says that he considers himself a Catholic, uh, not a Catholic, I'm sorry, a Christian but that his view of Christianity is not really commiserate with one typically thinks of Christianity. Um, he sees Christianity as um, anti-authoritative, right? Non-dogmatic. He, see, he believes in the, the kind of mystical aspects or the mystical tenets of Christianity, those being about, you know, what brotherhood and, you know, the, the basic tenets of treating each other fairly, as Jesus seems to espouse in the Bible, but not the top-down authority. He's laying that mostly on Paul and early church fathers. So basically making the argument that when we read the Bible, we're reading it through this kind of filtered view of the, the organization that is Christianity and not really the philosophical tenets of what Christianity espouses. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've been making arguments like this my whole life, Uh, you know, having gone to Catholic school for 12 years and 12 years. Yeah, 12 years. And um, seeing, you know, how the actual text is not really what is taught either in church or in the classroom. Um, I can see that there's an underlying hypocrisy that comes to, quote unquote, religious Christians. He sees himself as a secular Christian. Um, And he takes it to a place that I actually wasn't thinking about, and which seems to be another paradox to me. And that is the idea that the God of the Bible, whether it's old or new, it seems, although the old seems to be a little more um, rigid in nature, believes that man should not adhere to the authority of God. So basically, it is a God that denies his own authority, or that makes authority into a kind of test, maybe a trap, if I'm not being kind, um, that challenges man. And that if we, we fly past that trap in some way, we can become, I think, moral or holy, or, you know, if we get to the 20th century, maybe self-actualized, whatever that, that kind of sense of ideal being is, that seems to be the goal. And it seems to be getting by or bypassing God. Now, I'm just going to get, you know, a little more personal in terms of my beliefs here, but why do we need a God for that, right? That doesn't seem like a logical step. And I'm not really sure if Brown thinks that is the case either. I don't know if he's using God in a literal sense. I mean, he literally depicts a physical God in this text, uh, I think twice. But does that necessarily mean that he believes in it or is that kind of a working metaphor? Ultimately, why do you need to call yourself Christian then? Why do you need the sense of religiosity and all the connotations that go with that to organize, you know, your philosophical beliefs? Why not just be a secular humanist in that regard? It seems to fit better. I'm not sure that we need any of that authority as a kind of structural apparatus, except that it kind of helps him get his libertarian ideas across. And, you know, we talked about it with paying for it and Louis Riel, but, you know, the, the Brownian libertarianism seems to be at work here in a big way. So how do I articulate that? I, you need some kind of authority to kind of work against, right? If my message is going to be the individual should have greater prominence as a idea-making machine, then the Leviathan—that is the society, or some kind of you know central authority, whether it's a, a government or a corporation or whatever that is. Well, I wouldn't say Brown would say it's corporation. I think I'm throwing that in, but you need some kind of symbol of that working system. And I think for our purposes, um, the Bible and the Godhead works well to portray that. So I think you know getting those libertarian message out. Um, works conveniently in this, in this text. Now, I've said it before that I'm not a huge fan of those, um, libertarian tenets, you know, because I actually do believe in cooperation and, you know, people, um, taking care of each other, uh, as a, a better, what, evolutionary course of mankind than the idea of competition and, and solipsism. But, um, the way that it is portrayed, I think, you know, does say some very interesting and provocative things about the nature of religion. So, you know, and again, this is all so great in terms of just strange ideas, you know, that I hadn't thought of or, or framings of, of ideas I wasn't used to and, and making it uh, a challenge. I, I think this book was a little easier for me to crack and grasp than mixing metaphors, than um, paying for it though, because because of that that intimacy, I think I found it really hard to argue against a person that had those those immediate experiences. You know, you, you can't really argue with that. All he's doing is relating that kind of energy um, because he's working with another text that I have equal authority to come to and challenge on my own terms. I feel like I don't know, I feel like it's 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 more readily available. My critique and my engagement. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good with that. Okay, the, the last theme that I wanted to talk out and hinted at a little while ago is this idea of the authority of the storyteller or the authority of the historian, you know, however you want to frame it in terms of this biblical um you know work that's being depicted here. So I like that Brown is, is playing with, you know, the, I don't know, the ideas of, of what can be manipulated and what can't. So constantly in this te- well, I shouldn't say constantly, a handful of times, and it's more towards the end than I would say the first half, Brown inserts um, ideas, whether it's to kind of further his argument or because he's making an inference based on some critical point of view or maybe... Um, his particular, his particular read on uh, the particular story he's depicting, but he seems more comfortable with, with playing with the text and, and demonstrating some things. So to say that this is a complete historical uh, analysis or interpretation is not completely the case. It, it's a mashup of Brown's own personality and ideas and the, the text as we know it. And he is also constantly looking at other texts and issues of translation. So in the notes, which are absolutely robust here, you'll see that he is um, talking about Gnostic works. He's talking about um, how translations into English, you know, create different kind of biases, perhaps. And using all of that as, you know, fair game for his own product, which I think is great, right? That is incredible in terms of the individual versus an authoritative body. You know, I, I don't think that any text has complete authority. But I, you know, from my own experience, I was told over and over again through youth and I guess continually am told that the Bible in particular does have authority that we should understand. I mean, this is this is the stuff of the uh, the great wars of religion, you know, who gets to manipulate the text? Brown is saying I do, or author does. And I think there's something very postmodern and something very refreshing about this kind of, um, I almost said takedown, but I don't think it's a takedown to challenge to biblical authority. So, I, can't, I think I can't help compare this to Louis Rael, because although Louis Rael seems to be a text that is far more interested in historical documentation, I think we can see the beginnings of Mary wept over the feet of Jesus um, in that text. You know, there are certain points in Louis Royale where where Brown would say, hey, you know, I'm not sure if it happened exactly like this, but here's the best indication. And, you know, there's something about that that's that's honest, you know, that the the story I want to tell is more important than accuracy, as much as I want there to be accuracy. And it's ultimately, I think, leading to the idea that there is no no perfect sense of truth in text, that that art kind of reigns over history in a lot of ways. Um, I like that, or I like that play anyway. So in some ways, I actually see Jesus wept as like, a beautiful marriage of paying for it and L'Oreal, you know, it, it's both those impul- input and impulses, the impulse to, to go back and retrace history and the impulse to, to look at the world through my own individualistic voice, particular in this case to prostitution, the marriage of those gives us this, this very interesting text. Um, one more thing about, That is, the nature of this book itself, um, and paying for it, actually, are, I think, challenges to authority in an interesting intertextual way. Is that right? Metatextual way, I guess is better put. But it it didn't strike me until I read reread Mary Wept, but before paying for it, when I pick up the book, Save Louis Royale or Ed the Happy Clown, I look at the text that is put together and serialized and consider that the text. And then all of the additional material, the afterwards, the notes, the the pictures and graphs and maps or whatever, to some degree, that is Brown's commentary on the text that already exists. Paying for it changes things, right? When I got paying for it, which was a first edition, you know, and Mary Weptwich which is a first edition, I got embedded in it those notes. It seems that they are as much part of the quote-unquote text as anything else. I can see a clear differentiation when it comes to Ed and Louis Rael that I do not see, and that has to do a lot with how it's published. And the idea that um, it's getting more intense with each new volume, I think, says a lot about What Brown is doing in terms of challenging what we think of as textuality. So, this is at least three, uh, one third, you know, notes and afterwards and such. Um, There's even a whole, you know, section, uh, secondary cartoon that is uh, the depiction of Job in here, which I can't tell if it's part of the text or not. I'm going to treat it like this whole thing is text, notes, and everything. So, for Brown, a text is not only. The product, it is the the how to, it is the create the all the the metatextual stuff that goes into the product. It all seems the same. It's all fluid. So again, I, I think that this makes this book and you know um, paying for it a different kind of postmodern work. You know, uh, I think it belongs in categories. You know, with with um, with Nabokov's Pale Fire perhaps. Um, as as a kind of uh, book that is a book about commenting on books. All right. Um, I like it. I like it a lot. All right. Let's talk about some stylistic issues um, in this book. So very much like the last two works, we have a set number of panels that organize each page. This one is very structured in terms of four panels per page, until you get to the end of the story and then it varies in terms of how many panels the story actually needs. Again, I know I'm repeating myself over the last three, over the last two podcasts, but this is a way to tell the story until it has a natural organic ending, right? Um, Like in those other tales, uh, when a scene shifts has nothing to do with when the page turns, it has everything to do with with what the next seat, what the next panel should reveal. So there's something kind of organic and natural about this. Why it's only four here, uh, as opposed to the six or eight that we saw in other works, I don't know. I do think there's something kind of, I don't know, um, fancier is a weird word to use about this text and it's four long panels. It, it reminds me to a certain extent of like stained glass that I've seen. Um, I understand that stained glass is all different and has, um, all different shapes of glass panels, but the idea of these four, you know, horizontally, I'm sorry, uh, not horizontally vertically elongated panels has the kind of overall feel of that, that kind of, um, the effect of what stained glass should do this kind of looking up to the heavens, uh, kind of thing that might be a little lofty, but I like it. And particularly because of the cover and, uh, the title, kind of uh, panels and panels that demonstrate transitions that are just uh, text-based. They all have this kind of old-timey. I guess it's a medieval sensibility. It looks like old texts that monks would translate, where they um, where they illustrate um, borders and different iconography around the text and around the images in order to, I don't know, say something more about the context of the work. So Brown is doing that here. Um, You'll get a typical, you know, a vertical panel that has an oval shape, um, and in four corners, there'll be little, uh, some vegetation, you know, a leaf and a tree branch um, and things like that. On the cover, you see snakes coming out of a scrolling scripture. You know, th- there's something that I think speaks back to authority, you know, speaks back to the uh, medieval authority that those monks set to create when they were, um you know, crafting these works first and foremost. And I think it's very smart here. I think it's it's not Brown asserting authority, but playing with the notion of authority, uh maybe challenging it. And if you take the, his style that is rather cartoonish in nature, um, and, and juxtapose it or, or mash it up with the, the old kind of medieval iconography, you get this kind of strange hybrid or this, this modern sense of old authority, which I think in itself is a visual challenge. Yeah, I like that. Um, all right. Last thing about style is Brown actually acknowledges, I think it's in the afterwards, or it's actually an acknowledgments, which is after the afterwards, um, that there are several different comic artists that have tackled biblical subject matter before he did. And I haven't read any of those um, except for R. Crumb's absolute masterwork, the book of Genesis. It's one of the greatest um comic I've ever, I've ever seen. I mean, our Chrome is absolutely one of the best. There's no doubt about that. Um, but there's something about Genesis that is so detailed and heartfelt and focused that, uh, it blew me away when it first came out. I was at about 10 years ago, I guess. Um, I really couldn't put it down. It made me see Genesis, um, in different ways that I hadn't seen before. I think I'd like to talk more about that, actually. Um, I'd read Genesis. i would read the whole Bible before, just as a kind of academic uh, pursuit after I was you know, brainwashed <laughs> as a Catholic school child. By the way, I'm not at all um, angry about my Catholic school upbringing. It gave me a lot of perspective about how the world really works. So I don't mean to, uh, to argue against that. It actually uh, had a lot of benefits to it. But there's... Um, uh reading it, it, it showed me that the Bible is not as kind of clean as I think the text itself demonstrates. You know, it's something having to do with the elevated language of that early modern um, you know, uh St. James, you know, kind of sensibility. But the um, you know, you get a sense of this kind of regal coherence that um that Brown, in his illustrations, I think, kind of debunks. You see, you know, characters that are looking, you know, disheveled and they wear these kind of ragged caveman like clothes. And it, it almost creates a kind of arth- anthropological sense of what the Bible really is. It frames it more as a scientific work than as a work of mythology. And under that microscope or through that filter, you see these people as more human, you see, you see what the, I think the intention of the Bible is, which, which is more along the lines of what Brown is trying to do in his work, showing people as kind of flawed and like me, rather than these, um, revered figures that, that, um, I'm, I'm supposed to take for granted as being holier than I am or something like that. So Brown doesn't go that far, you know, um, he doesn't take it to the uh, the Crumbian extreme here, um, but I think he's doing something a little different. Where where Crumb wants to get at that kind of you know visceral nature of what a human really is, Brown seems far more interested in the philosophy, in um, the ideas that underlie these texts, than he is in some kind of visual accuracy. So his... His settings seem pretty sparse, you know, um, a lot of them are just um, in black, you know, when whether it's an interior or towards the end, you got you have a lot of uh, thought bubbles that are just in black around them. Um, even the landscapes, you know, they with happy little bushes and rocks and such. Everything does look kind of clean, almost like the texts I remember from taking, you know, religion class when I was in grammar school. You know, where you'd get a a rendering of Jesus with children around him, and everything looked, you know, sort of idealized. Brown functions more towards that, I think. Um, which you know is not a criticism. I think uh, that is a way to to get a clearer sense of his thesis. And I do appreciate that he has a clear thesis here, you know, um, an idea that that is kind of central to his work, which I'll get to in more detail in a bit. Okay, very nice. Now, I'm going to move on to the stories themselves. I, I think my plan is to go to each one and really puzzle out what it's doing in terms of both the message of authority, and the message of pro-prostitution. It seems they're designed to be one or the other, um, but I think some of them hold both. Uh, I think you have to go piece by piece. So the first story is Cain and Abel, and I think this is the hardest one to crack. Well, until you get to Job. Job is actually one that I've always struggled with and continue to struggle with. But um, if we think of Job as the last story in this book, those two bookends... I think are uh, the most challenging. So why is that the case? Well, it's the case because and and I'm, by the way, from here on, I'm only going to talk about Brown's rendering of the text. I'm going to take for granted that Brown's text is the text and his meaning-making mechanism. very literative there. Didn't mean to do that. Um, and so this is not me critiquing the Bible, although that sounds like a fine catalog to do one day. Uh, this is about Brown's interpretation. So I think the, the Cain and Abel story, though, is is very, very uh, faithful to the, the Genesis story of Cain and Abel. But basically, what we have is Abel... Um, is it Abel? Yes. Uh, Abel is the, the 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 goat herder or the sheep herder who essentially defies the word of God. And um, God seems to be okay with it. And Abel is not okay with it, nor is Adam their father. So what you have here is God being authority, laying down law. In this case, it's that men should eat plants and not animals. Adam and Abel living according to that law, Cain not living according to that law, and essentially being rewarded for challenging that idea. Adam, it can be assumed, and particularly Abel are put off by this, continually thinking they're doing God's work, you know, kill or Cain kills Abel and Cain is banished. And the banishment seems to be for what? Lack of imagination, for lack of individual spirit. Or something like this. Um, I think, you know, what is it at essence that this is all about? You know, I think when, when this is framed as a kind of, um, you know, schoolboy tale, it's about don't kill, you know, but that's actually doesn't seem to be the message. The message seems to be, um, be an individual, right? Don't be a hack that just kills because you think it's going to please the God, right? Um, I kind of get that. And I kind of um, think that that Brown has the right read here, you know, that the, the conventions of society are traps and they're not going to be um, healthy all the time. I think that's right. I think it's a very modern point of view. By modern, I mean 20th century, 21st century. Um, I don't think that's how most people have even been um, been OK with living their lives until you get, you know, something like modernism, maybe late you know, 19th century society, I don't know, maybe Enlightenment society to a certain degree, the first glimmerings of that. But I think the Bible might be telling me that. Here's the problem, though. I guess I fundamentally will always go back to this idea of how do we feel about a God that gives us laws in order to, to you know, entrap us into obeying them? You know, it seems cruel. It seems um, illogical. And therefore, I conclude not that, you know, we're reading God wrong, but why do we need a God at all? Again, I'm not going to go back to that over and over again, but it does seem to be first and foremost. And and it's strange, you know, um, ultimately, I, I don't think that Brown believes that there is this kind of white bearded holy figure up there either. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm, I'm still very confused about that. I guess I don't really understand what Brown means by being a Christian if he denies divinity. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so he does have an interesting note here that, that says that this story probably, um, arose from, you know, sheep herders, you know, uh, you know, people that were, you know, part of the the first people that, um, were justifying their own behaviors so that they created this story, you know, uh after the fact of of organizing themselves around eating meat to justify meat eating and this kind of agriculture as a uh you know as a a proper way of living, which is good. And I love that that Brown has that in here because that's more of a nod to the, you know, um the authority of the text, you know, he is not claiming that this is the divine voice. He is saying by giving me that note, Hey, you know, just, just to keep you on the loop here. I get that this was probably written by people that had other agendas than, you know, being holy or demonstrating some kind of, um, you know, uh, religiosity. Okay. The next, is it three stories? Next four stories are all old Testament stories that have to do with women um, in some kind of sexualized role. So, and these are the four stories that Brown argues later are the, are the, um, the women in the genealogy that build up to the birth of Christ. His argument ultimately being that since most genealogies in the Bible are male-based, and this one is an anomaly, there must be some reason for that anomaly. So these women in particular, which are the only ones in that genealogy, apparently, must be here for a reason. And the only link he can put uh, across them all is their use of sexuality. Therefore, Matthew, who's creating the genealogy, wants to demonstrate them more as part of the continuity of divinity, if we buy into Christ as divine, or let's just say a kind of special place in terms of heroism or heroism. Therefore, early Christianity, or at least the tenets of Christ were pro prostitution. Again, I think that's all very clever. And he has uh, a couple of biblical critics that he um, uses to kind of bolster some of these ideas. But I guess I'm just not sure why we need it. Why do we need that? I mean, it's very clear to me that that Christ, you know, was was for the marginalized, you know, sensibilities, uh, you know, prostitutes and and uh, beggars and lepers and children, the people that generally did not have uh, outsiders, foreigners, people that did not ha- generally have an outs- uh, a voice in the mainstream of the uh, Judean society. So again, I, I mean, it's clever argumentation, but I, I don't know that it's necessary. I mean, unless I'm thinking that it's just, it's just more evidence away from, I don't know, the, the kind of cheesy, one-dimensional sense of how we read the Bible as these clear morality tales. So m- maybe if it's for an audience that has never heard arguments like this before, it can function just as better perspective building, something like that. Anyway, let's talk about Tamar or Tamar. I think it's Tamar. I'm going to go with that. Um, so Tamar basically, um, becomes a prostitute after several unfortunate marriages where she is marginalized because of what seems to be the word of, of God, the word of the law, you know, um, probably in Deuteronomy, you know, how one should function with, um, a widowed, uh, the widow of a sibling or something like this. Anyway, um, she's basically, Thrust out of her family and forced into prostitution. She basically does, you know, the old switcheroo where she um happens upon uh the man she was supposed to marry. Um they have sex, she has this child, and ultimately what we see is that man whose name is uh Judah. Um, I believe, yeah. Uh, Judah basically repenting and saying that, look, if the law is wrong, then I'm as much to blame for breaking the law as Tamar is. Therefore, you know, um, she shouldn't be punished in the way that she's about to, which I think is executed, which seems a little nuts to me, but whatever. Um, so basically, what is this doing? It's This is more about prostitution hypocrisy. You know, this is, I think, a story that demonstrates that you know, um, if prostitution is wrong, then then John's are as wrong as the prostitutes themselves are in terms of perpetrating that sin, which I think is probably a, a good step, you know, a step in the right direction for these, you know, I guess I would say uh, backwards times. Um, but I think there's also, you know, a sense that the word in Deuteronomy is probably false or to be taken too literally means to um, lives to, to mean in this kind of stiff, illogical way, in a way that is mechanical rather than organic and true to the individual. So the next story is, uh, Rechab, Rechab, Rehab, I'm not sure, um, how to say these things, but basically, um, she is a prostitute that takes in two Israelites, um, as they spy on this community I forget what the community is But it's a walled in community essentially And um, they, they come in And before they, um, they can leave for the day To get to uh, their own people in safety um, They are tempted by the prostitute And decide to stay the night She takes them in um, As they are recognized And hides them away Essentially, um, she helps them escape. And when the Israelites now come and essentially demolish their community, which seems to be a horrible act of genocide, which has always made me kind of uh, uncomfortable with a lot of the tenants in the Old Testament, how uh, it's just kind of casually okay with um, the Israelites, you know, committing horrible acts of uh, war against people over and over again. Maybe there's context for that, but the Bible does not give me... um, Context uh, good enough to justify it. Anyway, um, she saves them and she has rewarded her, and it seems her family at least are spared from their vicious onslaught. So, again, what do we get here? We get prostitution as a way to a way to, towards morality. Um, I guess I'm having problems with the type of morality that implies it seems to be a morality that is uh, justifying you know, war and slaughter. But given that, I mean, from the perspective of the Israelites that are writing and um, engaging with this text, it seems that it is more evidence that the prostitution is is acceptable, right? That prostitutes can do good things. And I think they are taken into the Israelite way of, way of living. And she becomes, I guess, honorary and part of the lineage of, of what will be Christ. Um, I, I, what I was wondering about is, is, you know, the kind of general morality beyond just the violence. If she Rehab is going, um, she, she's essentially giving up her own people for the betterment of the Israelites. Or if I wanted to be kinder, she's saving her own skin, you know, rather than, going out and warning her own people that there's going to be an attack. Let's, let's get together and do what we can to stop it. So if there is authority in the story that we can view as morality, then the morality is that if you're that, if you're furthering the agenda of the Israelites, you are moral. And if you're going against that specific agenda, you are immoral. It, doesn't say anything about any kind of universal morality or attempt to really distinguish what is right and wrong. Right and wrong becomes subjective based on my specific goals, which does not seem as morality at all. But I don't think Brown cares because (laughs) Brown is, is doing something with the author's point of view in terms of justifying prostitution. Now, the next two stories are not about Prostitutes, per se, but they are about people that are using sex to gain a social advantage. So, Ruth is a person that loses her two sons and has two daughter in laws. And basically, um, one of those daughter in laws um, is it a daughter in law or is it Ruth herself? Uh, yeah, I think it's daughter in law, uses um, her beauty. To um, marry into uh, a wealthy family um, Somebody that has a lot of means And Ruth kind of guides her in that, um, in that uh, situation And because of this We are supposed to see sex as transactional And that transaction being um, I don't know, just I, I think part of the natural sense Of how relationships works Again, I don't know that that is something I can get behind 100%. It seems, as I've talked about uh, last time in paying for it, it seems to be a kind of weak sense of what the human experiment really is. It, doesn't, it, it negates, I think, uh, companionship and love in the way that most people really feel it. Feel it. Um, it seems too manipulative here. But as a, justific- as a biblical justification, I can totally understand why it's a piece here. All right, I'm going to stop temporarily. So the fourth of this quartet of biblical women is Bathsheba, probably the most famous of these. um, The wife of a man that is a soldier for King David, who has an affair with King David and ultimately leading to his to her husband being sent to the front lines And and killed um, You know Not directly but tangentially Connected to David's wishes So this one really Confused me because I don't know that there's That this really shares Anything in common with prostitution If anything if I'm reading this message correctly This seems to Champion um, what, what Brown would call Possessive monogamy Um in in paying for it. So, I mean, ultimately, because Bathsheba steps out with David, bad things happen and David is regretful. He breaks down weeping at the end. Bathsheba's not really all that present in the text in and of herself, right? Um, it seems that what will end up happening to her is that she will um she lost her husband, and it doesn't seem likely that she will end up with King David, which you know, if we can give her any kind of motivation, maybe we could say that that was her intention, although that's never really explicitly stated. Um, so I'm not really sure what this is doing here. Um, you know, this seems to be more in keeping with what I remember are the kind of basic, you know, 10 commandment, top down authoritative tenets of, of, um, the religion. So, yeah, I would need more evidence here for why Brown is is um, including this. He doesn't really go into it in any kind of detail in terms of a justification. Um, beyond the idea that he just kind of wants his argument to work, I will buy it with Ruth. Ruth does seem to, to kind of work in this mindset. Bathsheba really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, if, you know there was some kind of free sex message that underlied this story, I could buy it. But, um, I mean, it's all, all the motivations sexually are all about kind of jealousies, I think. Um, In terms of the males, in terms of Bathsheba, I don't have enough information. So that's confusing to me. And, you know, as I argued in paying for it, there are tendencies in Brown to, I mean, think of his argument first, and then try and retrofit the evidence. And I think this might be an example of that. Uh, it might be the only example, though. That, that is is certainly the weakest of these, these stories. Now, the Mary, the mother of Jesus, I think, is very interesting. So this obviously moves us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we're in the realm of Christianity. Um, so this is, I think, going to to be very manipulative in terms of text, because as we get closer to Matthew and his specific ideas, I think Brown wants to hit harder and harder the idea of, um, you know, of, of this pro-prostitution idea. So in a nutshell, basically, he is arguing that it is likely that Mary was, if not a prostitute, what we would say now promiscuous, that she has had at least one other lover before she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, Brown does a lot of, of notes on some justifications for this. He argues that um, some the the text, which I think this is only in Luke and Matthew, but basically argues that the text never directly states that she was a virgin, just that she will not have a child born from Joseph, um, and a couple other details. He later argues that um, virginity was a kind of ironic term that was applied to prostitutes, and it could mean that there... I don't know. It, it all seems a little bit speculative, but um, but I don't think it, it really matters. I think the argument is is interesting. And I mean, if I'm being honest, true to nature, because I don't believe in the, um, supernatural aspects of, of the virgin birth. So if we can buy the Bible as historic historical record, I think it would, it would just default to the idea that Mary was somebody that would have had sex. If we then can go on and say that Jesus was, you know, either Messiah or somebody that was special, well, then we have the result that, um, promiscuity or premarital sex or perhaps prostitution are all, um, are all sources of divinity or sources of, of, you know, incredible acts that have great results. So, you know, I'll buy that as a, as a a means to, to champion, you know, Brown's also uh, ultimate message that the marginalized in society should be seen as, as mainstream or at least, you know, um, you know, important in a way. Uh, he has some other interesting ideas in here. You know, one is, and I think this mostly comes from the notes, but one is that the juxtaposition against Mary, um, uh, no, uh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth's birth, Elizabeth being the cousin of Mary and who, around the same time is, um, pregnant with who will become John the Baptist. The idea that, that, that is a miracle because of her advanced age juxtaposed against Mary is kind of setting up this, this, um, this kind of sense of, of a good birth versus a bad birth. And, 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 um, you know, what that means in terms of kind of bolstering up miracles and Mary. And, and I think there's a lot of provocative ideas in here overall. Um, I, I think it's, um, you know, ultimately the meat of the argument. This is the kind of central idea that Brown wants to get out. Uh, one thing that's interesting about this, um, the depictions in the story, though, is it, it has more to do with with Joseph than it does Mary. It's really quick. Uh, on page 113, you get the angel coming upon the scene, And I love how you just see her feet dangling. I guess I'm going to say her. Um, it seems angels seem to be more feminized and brown. Mary looking up and them having the interaction and then Mary and Joseph interacting. And then the last panels are Joseph's kind of um, ideas about um, whether or not this is going to, to be too much for him, whether um, it's too much of a stigma, you know, people knowing that he is raising the child that isn't his, essentially being what is called a cuckold. So, you know, the idea that there's sacrifice involved here, the other idea that Joseph, who I think by all accounts is a good man, is going to make the right decision and not be stigmatized, all works in Brown's favor here. And I think there is ultimately a pro, you know, sex, uh, a healthy, idealized vision that, um, that comes through. The uh, yeah, I think that's that's about all I wanted to say about that. Um, that is not the Mary, though, from the title. I think I'm going to skip a little bit and go to Mary from uh, Bethany. Uh, we're gonna we'll get back to the talents. Uh, but the next story is the talents, then we go to Mary Bethany. That is the another Mary. So, when I first read this book, I think anybody that comes upon it would think that the Mary who wept over the feet of Jesus would be his mother. It is not it's this other Mary um Mary Magdalene in the notes is uh brown says was just kind of uh, um overlooked, you know that he never thought to depict her or her stories, you know, which is odd since she is the most famous prostitute in the Bible, I would imagine, um but he says that many accounts have Mary of Bethany being the same as Mary Magdalene uh those are you know. Uh, biblical critics, and uh, scholars. But the uh, Mary Bethany account is um, interesting. It it is basically just Jesus bringing Mary into the kind of mainstream fold, and she anoints his feet, and basically Judas um, scolds her for talking about money, and Jesus essentially scolds Judas that he should mind his own business and not worry about what other people do for money and worry about himself. There's a lot going on in this, you know. First off, this elevates uh, you know, the prostitute to, you know, the the upper echelon of what Jesus thinks are righteous people, um even over his own uh, apostles. I do think it's interesting that Judas, you know, given what we know about Judas is the one that lashes out against her and you know demonstrates the hypocrisy of this of this scene, but um you know ultimately uh the message here is that however somebody wants to go about their individual means to live their life um in this case, particularly financially, is nobody else's business. so you do see kind of money and that um, pro capitalist libertarian strain kind of poke its head in this rendering of this story. And, um, this does seem to have a lot more kind of brownie and flair or manipulation as we get deeper into these stories, so those two are um, are interesting, I think because of the link name you know um, i'm not i 'm not really sure you know why that is, but they're uh but you know if we consider Mary, you know from our perspective now being this holy figure, and I come from Catholics, so you know she is. I think more pro- uh, prominent than most Protestant sects of Christianity. But to, to give the to think that the prostitute has the same name, I'm sure it was a common name, but still symbolically speaking, it's important. And is being raised up to this idea of of saintliness is um is is I think the ultimate message. And and this is obvious. I think this is this is why I'm saying I don't know that we need all the Matthew stuff and those particulars to see Jesus as somebody very sympathetic to prostitution overall. Okay, um, let's go back now to the talents. Uh, The story, uh, the parable that Jesus tells about um, three slaves. Uh, Apparently, they're not specifically slaves in the Old Testament, but he's intuiting that um, for a couple different reasons. But basically, these three slaves get um, talents, which are large amounts of money, and they are to go off and invest them in different ways. One of these men buries it, one of the men um, doubles it, and the other men spends it all on prostitutes. So basically, you know, very similar actually to um, the Cain and Abel story, the one who buries it is um, imprisoned, you know, because he is basically scared to to be an agent of his own will, to to go off and actually do something that is um, important. The, the one that doubles it is scolded, you know, even though he did so. I think the implication being because he didn't do it for himself, because he had his master in mind uh, at the forefront. Um, and the man who spent it all on, prostitutes not only doesn't get punished, but gets rewarded with all of the talents that the other, um, men generated or hoarded. So he gets five talents altogether, uh, making him a very rich man and probably a man that's going to go have a lot more sex with prostitutes, I would imagine. So this is a, a story that, you know, this and the prodigal son, actually are stories that, are extremely counterintuitive when you think of just basic tenets of morality. You know, um, no, you know, um, right-minded adult would think that the man that was rewarded was most responsible (laughs) or did the the right thing, um, you know, taking for granted that they're slaves and taking for granted the uh, misogynistic nature of society at this time, you know, Just just kind of in terms of of the basic utility of it, it it doesn't seem like he made the right decision. Why then should he be rewarded? Same thing with the prodigal son that we're going to see in a couple stories, right? The idea that the son that was um, uh, irresponsible, that, that, that wasn't thinking of the future is rewarded and the son that did all the right things wasn't, you know, is a little shocking. The only thing that would make sense is... Um, a god or some kind of dogma that believed in in individuality and anti-authoritative sentiments over the kind of, you know, blindly listening to authority. Now, again, I'm for, you know, the idea of individualism um, over an arbitrary sense of authority. But I don't know that these are arbitrary senses of authority. You know, the, the idea that money is squandered in this way, um, the idea that uh, a parent would be disrespected in the case of the the uh, prodigal son seems to be exaggerations again, I understand that these are parables and they are by their very nature exaggerations but um, I, I think the, these two stories in particular are good evidence to brown 's ultimate thesis that the the god of of Jesus is one that, that wants people to, um, think for themselves. I mean, um, uh, I'm probably going to get it a little wrong, but I know that one of the first things Jesus says when he gets his disciples together is you need to follow me. You need to forsake what society around you says. And we're going to, you have to kind of get on board and go on this ride, which I think does have some, you know, um, built in, uh, issues, you know, um, you know forsake your families, forsake your jobs, forsake your parents, but buy into me it 's not that you 're completely dismissing authority it 's that you should have me in mind as authority. That sounds more like the um, the story of Rahab and the Israelite God that 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 only cares about about loyalty to me, not loyalty because there is a moral sense that exists in the world. So if, taking for granted that Brown is telling the stories of the prodigal son and the talents uh, straight, I, I think there's some confusion in here. I can see them as, you know, fodder for supporting Brown's point of view, but I don't know that they, they have their own, you know, solid logic in their own right. Um, you know, I feel manipulated when looking at these stories. If, if I really wanted to investigate what the stories had to say about morality— um, I don't know that they hold up in their own right, even if they are good evidence towards Brown's ideas. I feel like I'm repeating myself. That's all right. Um, anything else about the, uh, prodigal son though? Um, no, I, I think that's, that's probably it. Uh, the only interesting thing I saw was that the prodigal son is a story that is told only in Luke, according to Brown, which I didn't really know otherwise. And to use that, as evidence towards an argument that he's embedding in Matthew, I thought was interesting, um, and and he doesn't really uh, justify that or make too much of it. But I'm not sure that I can um, that I can uh, get behind that either as a kind of um, you know clear rhetorical logical mode. Okay, before the prodigal son and after Mary of Bethany, though we have what I think is maybe the most interesting of all the stories, and it's a story of Matthew creating the text of the new Testament or beginning it. Um, The early panels have him just like sitting down to write as an old man and wondering uh, what to write about uh, or how to begin this, this pretty ambitious um, project. And because he's stumped, he goes off into town and he sees a young prostitute whose name is Tamar And after an interaction with her, gets the inspiration for for using um, a kind of coded language to half, you know, tell the truth about the uh, the nature of prostitution as ultimate message. It assumes that his central message in writing the Old Testament is about prostitution, which I don't think is the case, even if he was somebody that was um, interested in as a topic. I would not say that that in good faith, you could say that it was a central topic or something that is, that is, um, at the core of what Jesus is all about. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong there. Um, but I like this story for a couple of reasons. First off, uh, Brown completely invented this, you know, this is just him, uh, dramatizing what he thinks is a plausible way to, to understand Matthew's motivations and to kind of highlight his larger thesis about prostitution in biblical biblical times overall. Again, even if it's true, I'm not sure what it really does to advance the argument. But as a kind of exploration of textuality and how texts get written and how inspiration comes to people to to think up imaginative works or even um, fold in imagination into historical documentation, I think this is a really, really interesting idea because at, you know, at center, this is an enormous challenge to biblical authority. I was taught my whole life that, you know, the Bible was the word of God. This um, completely... Uh, um, turns us back on that notion. And, you know, assuming that, you know, Brown believes that there is a God, which I think is, is not the case. But um, this basically says that this is the work of man, and not only man, but a creative man, one that is more interested in artifice and the rhetorical challenges of what a text can do, than about the true sense of historicity of, of wanting to, to tell the truth, you know, in all writing is an underlying agenda, you know, um, all art is, a, a system of coded messages, you know, um, even the most, I think, literal, you know, works, even the most historical works hold as much about the time and place and personality of the artists as they do about the subjects. I, I firmly believe that. And I think that is the, um, you know very strong overall sense of this i 'm not sure why matthew wasn 't last, so all of these texts seem to be working chronologically, right? Um, you go from Prodigal Son, which is in Genesis through the Old Testament stories, into the New Testament stories with Mary and the parables, and then you get Matthew before the prodigal son. I could would think that either Matthew would come before you get to the story of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, or you'd have it afterwards because he wrote it chronologically afterwards. So I'm not sure what it's doing embedded in here, unless the prodigal son is the story that that Brown wants to put last. And the only reason I can think that why there's an advantage to that is that he wants to bookend it with the Cain and Abel story because I think they're all they're all similar. I think the Cain and Abel story, the prodigal son, and the story of the talents all have this kind of similar challenge to deity um, and that authority. You know, obviously we have to take for granted that the father and the prodigal son and the slave master and the talents are a kind of God figure and the slaves and the sons are believers or... The disciples of that God. And if that's the case, you know, um, the individual is seen as the more authoritative voice in their own happiness and morality than the deities are. So that kind of closing off, you know, the story, I think probably works better um, than Matthew does as a central thematic idea. But I think I don't know. I think that's actually a misstep. I actually would prefer Matthew being last because, um, because it it seems like a nice cap to it all, a nice coda. All right. So that is the text proper. The only thing that we have left, and I'm not going to belabor the notes and afterwards, but, um, the, the last story embedded is the story of Job that is not put in the chronology of these stories. Job, I have a really hard time with when I'm trying to really figure out what it is about at core, you know, um, as a kid, it was always, you know, put forth that it's about being faithful to God, no matter what problems are put before you. The idea that that God will always protect you and, and care for you, despite, you know, you having a, a bad day. Job certainly has a bad day. I get that. But at the end of it, you know, Job complains about God and is restored. It's not really Job has a stiff upper lip and he um, he bears it and never curses God and therefore, you know, God rewards him. It's because Job does not buy into the authority, you know, of God and has his own voice and his own opinions about, you know, his circumstances that God actually respects him ultimately. So... <laughs> That I get because it's very similar to what's happening in Cain and Abel and, and the, the parables by Jesus that are depicted in this book. But if that's the case, why is it that we have the bet in the first place? Why do we need Satan or, you know, um, that, that, that Maleficent figure that comes and actually says, well, the only reason Job uh, listens to you is because you do right by him. Let's take away all the good you do by him and see how much he, he likes you. Why would God even buy into that if that wasn't something He cared about uh, in the first place? That's the problem I have. So you know, if God is somebody that that values that kind of authority, um, He's doing it definitively as a test. You know, definitively as um, a trickster in a sense. You know, He's um, not somebody that you know you could ever put into the category of all loving and all caring. Um, which, you know, Christianity, I I think in its, it's kind of a basic understanding, uh, champions. And again, you know, ultimately, I think I will, um, disagree with Brown. Brown will say, well, yeah, no, that's the mode of this God or authority. You know, somebody that wants to force the idea of individuality. I would say, well, I don't think we need a God at all then because, this doesn't lead to any evidence of there being God. This is all speculative. This says if there is one, it is like this. None of this actually gets at the core of the you know metaphysical being. You know, nothing here argues the idea that 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 there, there's a justification for even needing this kind of interaction. So it's it's a little bit confounding, this book, in certain ways. But I love the journey of it. I love how Brown is kind of, um, you know, grappling. You can see his thoughts kind of working through the artistry, working through the juxtaposition of these stories. Um, I don't know that it would be successful if you didn't have the notes to go along. I think it would be too enigmatic. The notes are essential to kind of... Um, you know, give you the, the, the underlying thought process and to take you through, you know, that kind of writerly sense of the text. Um, without that, uh, it, it would fall flat or, or be too confusing, I think. So ultimately, I like this a lot. Um, and uh, it, it is worth a read, um, particularly if you are somebody interested in theology, and um, you have a, an open mind about it all. The um, the last thing I want to say, I never talked about the central image on the cover um, that's done in that kind of fancy, decorative manner that I talked about earlier. But it's actually the feet of Jesus, I assume, being anointed. And um, it's not a picture that is depicted in the book proper. And uh, I think it's interesting because it's, um, I think it's a humble look, you know. It's, it's a look at, you know, what is considered the... Um, the, the basest kind of a uh, physical attribute, the feet, um, and the idea that, uh, they're being anointed, I don't know, demonstrate some kind of, um, humble qualities, uh, about deity. It, it, it makes deity earthy. Um, I think in the way that I talked about our crumb wanting to make, um, the characters of the old Testament earthy, which, uh, I think speaks to me, as a rejection of deity ultimately but again that could just be my own read and what I'm trying to do with it um but uh but I like it uh I I think it's uh it's pretty smart with the the drops of the um what seemed to be the anointing oil you know falling onto the feet they could also be tears which speaks to the Mary wept portion of it all so um yeah it's it's a very very smart book which uh It's worth a look. Okay, so moving on. I'm going to do one more solo podcast, and that is going to be on um, just works that I have not uh, spoken about uh, by Chester Brown. I got my hands on most of the individual underwater comics, so I'm going to be looking at underwater, and the um, specific uh, biblical comics that are featured in underwater, too. Those depictions um, of the... uh, the gospels, which, um, I think go very much hand in hand with what we see in Mary wept. So I was kind I wanted to talk about that a little here, but I'm going to save it for next week and, uh, anything else I can find by Brown. I know there's a bunch of covers and, and single comics. Um, so I'm going to do a little research, see what I can come up with, but, uh, it's been, uh, it's been real enlightening this, uh, this work with Brown and I hope he's got some really good things, uh, cooking to come. So, all right. See you next time.